Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The rules of college football changed enormously in 2021 when the Supreme Court decided that the NCAA could not enforce rules limiting the compensation of student athletes. The decision ended nearly 100 years of the NCAA's run as one of the most successful cartels in history. But how did an organization upholding amateur status and academic standards function as a cartel? And how is compensation in the form of name, image, and licensing contracts going to change college football? Joining me today on the show is one of the leading economic analysis, uh, analysts of sports, and particularly college football, uh, Dr. Brian Goff. Dr. Goff is University Distinguished Professor of Economics at Western Kentucky University, which was also his undergraduate alma mater. He earned master's and doctoral degrees in economics at George Mason University and has offered authored seven books and over 50 scholarly journal articles. He also wrote a monthly column on the economics of sports for Forbes magazine for many years. Welcome to eConversations, Brian. Well, thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with the, uh, the Supreme Court decision in uh, 2021 is NCAA versus Alston, which uh, really sort of changed things because it opened the door to this uh, name, image, and licensing uh, uh, deals that, that college athletes have, have begun uh, signing, right? That's right, yeah. And the majority opinion written by Justice Gorsuch addressed specifically the name, image, and, image and likeness topic. But then uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion that said, well, you know, you haven't asked, we haven't addressed bigger questions related to antitrust and price fixing, but he said, well, if you do, the NCAA doesn't really have much of a leg to stand on there either. And it was a really enlightening and well-crafted, concise statement. Yeah, and, and it really, um, you know, I was really struck as Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be accepting or adopting an argument that you put forward in a book with uh, uh, the late Bob Tollison uh, and, and Trey Fleischer uh, on the NCAA. Talk about the NCAA really is having functioned as a cartel. Yeah, we, we wrote that 30 years ago. It now seems like 100 years ago, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, Kavanaugh called out the NCAA. NCAA kept over the years and in their briefs before the court, it kept making the argument that, well, you know, you're going to blow up the, the college athletic model. But, but Kavanaugh said, well, wait a minute. You're, you're really just labeling it amateurism as professional sports, and you're making a circular argument. He said, you know, you're making an argument on sort of the theory that, you know, in college football, we don't play players, and so therefore we can't play players. Well, <laughs> 
you know, he, I, I really, he really got down to brass tacks where he said, you know, where else in America would this sort of price fixing work among different competitors for their workers fly? He said, if a bunch of hospitals got together, so we're going to cap nurses' salaries under the idea that, well, you know, we don't want commercialization of healthcare. Well, <laughs> you know, that wouldn't go. And so, yeah, this, he, he basically said, look, the NCAA is not above the law. And in many ways, I think it's not because of the strength of the argument that it had lasted so long. It had, it was largely, I think, because, well, this is the, what we've done. And so we need to keep doing it. <laughs> and whereas in the, all these other settings, where the nurses that he mentions or lawyers, that has never been acceptable. And so nobody was trying to make an argument in those areas. Well, so let's let's get in. Let's dive into this a little deeper because, like, probably uh, for for our viewers, they might find it a little odd to be thinking about the NCAA and that they're all about like academics and and uh, you know integrity of amateur sports. To th think of them as a cartel, because probably the most well-known example of a cartel would be OPEC running the oil, you know, world oil industry. So it might seem a little odd to think of any kind of connection there between OPEC and the world oil market and, and the actions of the NCAA. But I guess a part of it would be to, to think about when economists talk about cartels, we talk about a, a group of people, as you said, to get, said, coming together to sort of serve their collective, uh, their, their collective economic interest, right? Yeah, you know, we, we like our little buzzwords in economics, words like cartel don't get thrown around a whole lot in just everyday conversation. But yeah, you know, OPEC, these different oil producing countries, initially, especially Arab oil producing countries, were fixing prices of what they were selling oil. But a cartel can also be a group of producers that are fixing prices on what they're Buying, in this case, buying the services of workers. Now, I would adjust, you know, in our 1992 book, we, we labeled it a study cartel behavior and mob policy over the years began emphasizing to me, well, Brian, we really, you know, it's become more nuanced that what it really is a combination of a, of a joint venture of which there are many in society and business that, that cooperate for legitimate purposes. You know, and, and for the NCAA, scheduling purposes and, you know, basic rules of safety of play and, and courts widely recognize such joint ventures as having legitimate interests. But then the idea of fixing prices among what are really competitors, you know, well, that was first addressed in a 1984 case where the NCAA was doing this on selling the product. They weren't fixing prices per se, but they were they were limiting how many times a school could appear on television. And so Oklahoma and Georgia sued the NCAA. That blew that up. And that set us on this 30, 40 year path of conference expansion and money driving conference alignments. But it also then opened the door to bigger and bigger revenues. And so you got this bigger and bigger wedge between the revenues that were being made and, you know, whatever you wanted to value, the value of a scholarship to a, to a player. 
And so everybody eventually, you know, the Big Ten this week signed a seven and a half billion dollar seven year deal for the television contract. Well, get up to those numbers, everybody recognizes, hey, this is this is professional sports entertainment. Yes, it's it's attached to academic enterprises, but you know, and that's a, that that whole relationship in itself is a little strange, you know, as you get two very distinct things. But yeah, eventually the the amounts got so big that that begins drawing bigger and bigger attention to this price fixing, and the players sued the NCAA to say, well, look, you know, you're using our names and our images long after we're gone from the university. You know, why aren't we getting some of this money? Yeah, and you know it's a very important uh, uh, issue, and, and, and certainly in sports, you know, one of the things uh, economists looking at sports can uh, clearly try to attribute the, the revenue that the leagues are, are r raising to the actions of, of the players. I mean, it, it, we, it, what we call a, a marginal revenue product of, of the individual players and so forth. It's very hard to try to estimate them accurately, but it's it's clear that it's the efforts of the players that are generating these large sums of money, whether, whether it be tickets or, or television revenues. Uh, people are watching the, the uh, efforts of the players. And so in one sense, you can say it's only sort of fair that, that the players get a larger share of this money. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that's where the growing amount of money, you know, for years, you could, people would fool around with, well, but you know, the value of a scholarship here is this and that. But eventually, you begin seeing the point you made. And Dennis Wilson, one of my colleagues here at WKU and another colleague of mine, of mine, we finally did sort of what you said. You know, how do you estimate the value of this? So we said, well, let's look at professional sports. Essentially, across almost all professional sports, where you have collective bargaining, the players get about 50 to 55% of the revenue. Well, if you took 50% of college revenues at Texas, that'd be $100 million going to players. Or, you know, at the average SEC school making $90 million a year, well, that's $45 million a year going to players. And then we broke it down by position. You know, we asked, well, what share in the NFL is going to court a starting quarterback? And, well, all right, we'll take that share and we'll use the revenue figure for college athletes. And so, and these numbers are not completely up to date. They're fewer as dated now. But, you know, a quarterback at Alabama would be worth $4 million as a starting quarterback per year. And so, you know, and almost all the starters would be worth somewhere between one and a half or $5 million at these larger revenue schools. And so, yeah, you, you really, you know, that gives you, as we refer to in economics, a shadow. It gives you an, a, a pretty good idea of what the market value would be if if you if this were really operated the NFL as where it was either free agents or collectively bargained. And it, it also, because you talk about professional sports, it, there's a there's a common issue between the college sports and professional sports, and that is, uh, although certainly uh, they they're all based on voluntary participation, nobody can be drafted to play football in, in the SEC or, or 
uh, you know, has to be f forced to play in the National Football League. They, they have to voluntarily agree to play, but people's reservation wages, the term economists like to use to talk about the minimum you need to receive to do something for, for these jobs because, you know, they, they are so glamorous and, and they involve all the notoriety and if you score the winning touchdown and win the national championship, you have all of that fame on top of the money you might get paid. I mean, people would be doing these jobs for very little amounts of money, and yet they're generating huge amounts of money. So there's a lot of what economists call rents sort of at play here, and it's a common theme across different sports to, uh, for, for people to fight over those rents, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. in fact, in, in I have a 2019 book on sports economics uncut that I have a chapter titled Big Revenues and Low Profits in College Sports. And we get at this very thing that you, you get at that you know, people generate huge revenues but getting paid essentially nothing because, as you said, they got very specialized skills. It's hard if you're a great quarterback, you, you can't really use that anyplace else other than college football or pro football. You know, you, that doesn't help you be a better IT coder or anything like that. One of the things that factored in this and the title of that chapter gets at this, that over the years, people would be somewhat confused. I, I'm thinking way back in the 1980s, there was a U.S. News and World Report article saying that, well, you know, even Michigan and Notre Dame football are losing money. Well, okay, that, that has to be wrong. And over the years, is some I've written about in books and on Forbes, you, you can't think about the difference between revenue and expenses of a not-for-profit entity and think, well, that difference in profit. USA Today over the years has published a profitability study regularly, but it's nonsense, really, because expenses and not-for-profit, there's no, you know, you don't have shareholders, you don't have owners who are saying, hey, we want profits to be bigger. And so a not-for-profit, like in other parts of the university, expenses tend to to meet revenues. It's amazing how many pro athletic programs, expenses and revenues are exactly the same. And I'm sure you've seen this sort of behavior in your department. And, and when it gets near the end of the fiscal year and the department chair hasn't spent all the, what was allocated, they send out a notice, hey, what do you guys want to spend money on? <laughs> and so, yeah, there's, and so you really have to look at revenues in a not-for-profit entity as the best guide to really the health of the, of the business. And so revenues have just been, you know, we thought they were big in the 1980s, but over the last 30, 40 years, they've just shot through the roof. Now, uh, in grad school, when we you know, learn about or, or cover cartels, especially at George Mason, where we both went to, to grad school, uh, you know, we, we, we learned that well, cartels normally are very unstable in the, the market, but if you're ever going to have a cartel to work, economists talk about there, there have to be two things a, a successful cartel is going to be able to do, and one is to keep out entry, uh, to create some kind of barrier to entry. After you've gotten all the oil producers together and say, okay, we're going to jack up the price of oil, you've got to make sure nobody comes in and under, undercuts your, your price there. And, and then the other thing we talk about is a, a way to punish those who are going to defect or, or break the rules of your cartel. 
And, and so talk a little bit about how, how it was that the NCAAs had this ability to do, do these two things, and thus been able to, from an economic perspective, uh, succeed as a cartel for a relatively long time. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of ironic you mentioned that. I think this was 30 years ago. Robert Barrow published a piece in the Wall Street Journal where they had taken a poll of Harvard economic professors as to what are the best cartels in in the world in the U.S. And the NCAA came out on top that because of what you mentioned, this long run event cartels tend to break down. There's this, you know, even the OPEX world, you know, you have different size producers, they have different incentives. And so even though they're trying to agree, they tend to, but the NCAA somehow stuck with them. Part of it is this mix with colleges gave them legal protection, you know, that this wouldn't stand up most places because of the illegal challenge, but the players, you know, this language of student athletes. And so, and you've got a huge brand name entities, you know, these universities, well, you and I can't easily just go out and go, well, we're going to start uh, a competitor to the University of Alabama. And so, you know, you, you build and you need a sizable number of schools. And and so, you know, I think that helped. And then the NCAA was very successful for years in enforcing their restrictions and putting schools in probation and even giving SMU the death penalty. And then eventually even states sort of indirectly became co-opted into this by passing laws that punish agents that would pay players in the, while they were still playing for universities or punish boosters for such things. And so it took on in some ways the force of law. Again, that because you know, over the years there's been a lot of moralism and hand wringing, and lots of articles written about, oh, you know, the scandal at UCLA, the scan like at USC, the scandal at SMU, the, and everybody acted like it was, well, can you believe this? Well, this is what you get when you restrict payments going to people who are generating the revenue. Money is going to try to work its way toward them. And so the NCAA, you know, was pretty effective for years, and the states helped them out on that. And so you know, eventually, though, and, and other universities were better at doing it by the rules. We were joking. I was joking with a couple of my colleagues off camera here that the University of Kentucky basketball program had an NIL set up for decades. <laughs> you know, that, but it wasn't, it was more of a, hey, and in fact, in the book of John Feinstein many years ago, uh, Seized on the Brink, Indiana, they, they specifically recruited players under the Bob Knight super clean era saying, hey, if you come here, you see what happened. This guy's working over here as general manager of this car dealership. This guy has an insurance job that, that you know, they had a mean, they had institutionalized legitimate means of saying, hey, we can pay you off in some means that is above board. And then other schools said, well, we don't have that. We're going <laughs> to we're going to have our boosters try to pay, you know, in Kentucky and others did some of that too, you know, <laughs> paying underneath the table. But money is always going to try to work its way. And, and where you restrict that, well, I'll, I'll hold off on that. I'll let you ask the question. So. Well, okay. Uh, so you're going to ask, well, what happens when you restrict the, the, the payments? You know, where, where does, 
where does all that money end up going? If, if, and, and certainly then, you know, you, you also see sort of like you know, the, the danger when you mentioned like SMU and some of the, the schools that want to try to win. I mean, cartels always have this danger of breaking down because although as a group, uh, the, the, the OPEC countries or the NCAA schools want to restrict uh, their, their competition, they still want to compete. They, they, they still have margins right. in which they, they want to win. The SMU wanted to win a Southwestern Conference title, and they never could. And so you know, they, they, they talked to some of their boosters and managed to figure out a way to, to actually win a conference title. And so you know, you've got this tension there that, can, uh, that might go to end up spending some of that money. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you put it exactly right. But there's always going to be dimensions on which com competition is going to take place. And if you try to restrict the above board payments, then people will either try to pay below board or what you'll get is the discriminating influences will be, well, all right, we have better facilities. We have a better, you know, we have better cook. We have better transportation. We have a nicer jet, you know, that, or, and I think this is one of the reasons you see people like Nick Saban coming out, you know, really, you know, condescending towards schools that seem to be taking advantage of this system like he did toward Texas A&M. Well, Alabama had this huge advantage of name brand recognition. And so we recruit players based on, well, we're Alabama. Well, Texas A&M doesn't have as big of a football winning, winning tradition. I mean, they've had a big football program for years, so they can't quite keep up with Alabama on name brand. Well, here's a different dimension on which they can compete. Well, that undercuts some of Alabama's advantage. And as you and I were corresponding a bit, and you make the point, I think it's right. I think this probably helps competitive I think many people thought, oh, you know, the Alabama's the world are going to get even. Well, Alabama was getting all the best players before. My guess is this, some of them now leak out to other places because they think, well, okay, you know, you, you paid other guy this. I can't quite get that much amount, but if I go to Texas A&M or if I go to Texas or if I go to Oklahoma, I can. And so, yeah, there's always, there have always been implicit payments. And the other thing, too, is this, I started to mention earlier, I'll back off, but this mismatch of organizations. Uh, you had mentioned in our correspondence, Theater of Chicago, dropping football back in the 30s. And, you know, and even though it had been famous for football, Amos Bonzo Stag, and, but by the time it dropped it, there wasn't that much attendance, you know, Enrico Fermi was using the football stadium to run radiation experiments. And, but over the years, what has happened is you get units that have really nothing to, nothing much common with the university. And, and yet you get this flow of money. And so you even get very highly reputable institutions like North Carolina or USC where you and even the Notre Dame's the world where you have these scandals you know and so you, you the, the universities become painted by because of money trying to blow around one of the best illustrations of this mismatch and I'm not saying look 
you can't use the brand names. You can't use the, the names of the universities in some kind of licensing arrangement. But University of Michigan, when Jim Harbaugh went there, he was with everything total compensation making about seven million a year. Well, his ostensible bosses were making his president and the AD were making seven hundred thousand. Well, that in itself says, wait a minute, you have it's like Frankenstein's monster. You you've sewn on a body part here that really I, the, the analogy I've made over the years it's like. You're going to make a big Hollywood production and you're going to run it through the local car dealership and ostensibly make the general manager of the car dealership. You're going to make him the boss of a Hollywood producer. Well, that's, you know, you can see that's not going to really work. And, and that's what we've seen is this sort of organizational dysfunction as you've seen money and other sorts of means trying to work its way and you're trying to operate this one type of business in a whole different setting. You mentioned a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about how NIL and, and, and I guess we'll see if they ever go to actually paying players directly or, or just using these sort of indirect uh, deals for, for, I guess, promotions, uh, doing promotional work for, for businesses. Uh, how that's changing the landscape. And, and you mentioned, and I, I, I believe this, that it's going to make, uh, at some levels, particularly if you look at like Alabama, it's going to really erode away sort of their uh, leader, you know, their, their privileged position. And because I say they've, they've had this privileged position with this great football coach, Nick Saban, that nobody can really sort of duplicate what he, he's doing because if they could, they would already be doing. You know, Jim Harbaugh and others would have already be duplicating what he what he's uh, done, uh, and, and so he's had he has these like unique skills that we would think of as a, as an economist. Nobody else can sort of match what he's been doing. But as you mentioned, you know, you can if you're Texas A&M or some of the other schools with big, with deep pockets, you you can try to offer players more money to come there instead of of we say going to Alabama and that's going to at least for some of the players offset the the advantage of Alabama and, and you know Nick Sapin and, and his pipeline directly to the NFL first round uh, riches. Yeah, uh, one of my colleagues used to note that you know if in the NFL you just froze all players' salaries at some level, well now you make the Bill Belichick's the world even more critical. And it's what you're saying about the Nick Sapens when, all right, if you're going to limit how much players can move or what they can pay, well, now you've made coaches like that even more valuable. And you, you, you match him with a school with a big brand name. And that's the other thing that's really valuable. Well, <laughs> you, you dominate. Like, it's been interesting that while it seems like well, two or three schools are dominating underneath that account, Football, things have become more, more competitive. And I think this probably lead to more competition. I don't know, you know, in preparing for our conversation today, I did a little bit of looking around about, well, how does NIL work and what are the limits on it? And, you know, in looking in that, states now have their own rules, conferences, the NCAA again, says you can't come out and just directly make a pay-per-play offer the players. But the line between that and just saying we have 
answers over here. And if you come, we will, they will pay you. That line is very fuzzy and it's not clear how enforceable that line is. It, it seems like just kind of a paper tiger, you know, and I think the NCAA is very gun shy of lawsuits these days. And, and I know there's been a push on the part of the NCAA, you know, they spend half million to a million dollars a year in lobbying efforts, you know, and they lobbied before the Supreme Court decision to get an antitrust exemption and they continue lobbying for a national rule on these NIL contracts. But, you know, you, you never know what might come out of Congress, but I don't see, it doesn't seem like there's a big groundswell for such legislation. And in fact, the roundabout sports who asked not to be named, but was talking with a U.S. senator who's pretty influential, saying, and the senator was talking with a university president, and the point was, um, I'm not sure Congress wants to get involved in this because there's so it wouldn't just be about NIL; it would end up being about all sorts of other related issues and people have many different ideas. And I think the fact you didn't get legislation before the Supreme Court decision and now that decision is a year old and we haven't had anything since, you know, yeah, there's still some rumbling in committees and all, but I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not seeing it. Well, thanks very much for coming on and talk about this with, for us. We've come to the end of our time. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.